I wonder how many of you thought, oh, no sermon today, we get off easy because of the way we change things, yeah. How many of you thought, oh, I fell asleep during the sermon again? <laughs> All right, uh, I'm David Chan, I'm the executive pastor here and currently the interim lead pastor and so one of the things I get to do right now is I get to pick our sermon series and I'm really excited about this as we're gonna spend some time in Genesis over the next several weeks. Uh, a lot of our Bible reading plans, I don't know which Bible reading plan you might use, but often they start in Genesis, so I hope this will coincide with some of the things that you are reading and studying in your own personal time with the Lord. Obviously, there's a lot we could say about Genesis. Uh, if we did one chapter a week, we'd take the whole year, right? Minus Christmas and Easter. So we're not gonna be able to do that. Uh, we're just gonna spend a few weeks in it, see a few key things, but we're gonna go through perhaps the first half or so of Genesis. So be reading along and you can follow along hopefully as well that way and get more in depth on it. Uh, so I look forward to, to this. Uh, we're calling it Origins, uh, Genesis as our origin story so that we can see the why, the how, uh, the purpose of our humanity. Uh, you know, if you look around Hollywood today, origin stories are pretty popular, right? I mean, maybe now for a few years they have been. Hollywood got tired of doing sequels, you know, there's, there's like those Fast and Furious 9, 10, 15, 24, right? And so instead of doing more and more sequels, Hollywood thought, ah, what if we do an origin story, right? Instead of going forward, let's go back and let's tell people how this person, this character, this situation came to be. It's actually a pretty cool thought. It's a pretty cool idea. Um, I, had a, I had an experience in that recently that I thought, okay, this is a pretty good idea. Uh, because for me, when I was growing up or just throughout my young adult life, um, I watched, at some point I watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Any of you seen it? Yeah. Any of you thought it was weird, just like me? I thought, That's a, kind of a strange movie. I wouldn't show that to kids. I mean, I might scare them. They might not sleep at night. And so, you know, it wasn't particularly one of my favorites. But then recently our family watched Wonka, the origin story of this guy named Willy. And it really, it really highlighted, oh, it like kind of filled in the gaps. I can see now why, you know, this happens in the original movie and this and that, right? It kind of fills in the gaps. It tells you a backstory that paints a better picture so you can understand maybe why and how something came to be. Well, as we look at Genesis, that's our intent. We're gonna be looking back at our origin story. And especially these first two weeks, we're gonna focus on the origin story of creation and humanity. Um, the interesting thing about Genesis is it's an appropriately named book in the Bible because the definition of Genesis is the origin or mode of formation of something. Uh, that's what the word Genesis means. So the genesis of something means its origin or its mode of formation. So the Bible tells us, hey, this is how things started. And if you want to know the backstory, the origin story, begin here in Genesis. So as we explore the genesis of humanity, we're gonna begin with that question of what does it mean to be human? I think at the very core of our lives, we, we ask that question, what does it mean to be human? Uh, that reminds me of, as I was preparing for this, uh, when we served as missionaries in the Republic of Georgia, over in the, in the Caucasus, not the state, but the country, um, we, we often would ride in taxi cabs because taxi were a, a cheap mode of transportation. It was very easy to get around town, much easier than driving a car and trying to find parking somewhere. And so we'd hop in a taxi and we'd go and taxi drivers would often, you know, ask us questions. Where are you from? And then we, they use a little bit of English. We'd use a little bit of Georgian and try to communicate. And sometimes we'd find taxi drivers who spoke great English because they had really high education. They had trained for professional degrees. And so you ask the question, well, why are you driving taxis? Why aren't you working in your profession? And they would talk over and over again about how there's a lack of jobs. There's a lack of good jobs in Georgia. There's a lack of economic development. So they were driving taxis to pay the bills. 
And here you have, you know, very smart, talented people driving taxis to pay the bills. And so as I learned more about this particular taxi driver, his story really stayed with me because he started telling me about a businessman who came in from a surrounding country, wealthy businessman who had great business ideas, but he needed help getting those things started in the country. And so the taxi driver said, yeah, I can help you with that. So he drove him places, he connected him places, he introduced him to places. And so when the businessman was ready to get his stuff launched, he said, all right, thank you very much. I don't need you anymore. And the taxi driver said, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were business partners because that's what he told them they would be. But at that point, you know, once the guy was well-connected, he just dropped him and walked away. And so the taxi drivers left again, just driving and not having something better. So as I was hearing that story, I asked them, well, well, you know, did you not have a contract with this guy that said, hey, as we make these connections, you know, we're going to be business partners. And what he said really struck me. He said, a contract? He said, why do we need that? We're human beings. Isn't that enough? I thought, whoa. This guy has a high vision of what, what it means to be human and, and probably a more accurate vision of what it should be to be human. You know, we used to say, you know, a man's shake is as good as his word and you just shake your hand and, and that's what I'm gonna do. Commitment, integrity, truthfulness. Well, this guy, you know, he, the, guy, the businessman used him and then dumped him and again, here he's left without a business opportunity. But that question of, well, that he said, aren't we human beings? At first I felt sorry for him and, and a little bit about his naivety. And, and I did encourage him and said, hey, next time that happens, get a contract. A contract is a good thing. It's, a, it's your friend. It'll help you actually go forward. But it left me really with that question of what does it mean to be human? And who defines what does it mean to be a good human being? Because if you look at the average human today, just looking at, you know, pick an average human, right? We have our extremes. We have our super athletes that are like, wow, that person's phenomenal. Then you have your super evil villain people in the world. Yeah, okay, nobody wants to be like them. But what about your average human? If you just look at your average human, it actually doesn't tell us the whole story of what does it mean to be human? And why is that? As we're going to look at next week, it's because sin has watered down our humanity. Right? We weren't designed to be deceitful. And yet here we are, right? This businessman being deceitful with this taxi driver. We weren't designed to be proud and arrogant. And yet that is a common characteristic of humanity today. We weren't designed to be lustful for, for, for sinful things. And yet that is a common thing today. We weren't designed to be oppressors. And so in addition to sin watering down our humanity or distorting our humanity, sin also creates confusion about our nature and our purpose of what does it mean to be human? Who has the answer? Where is the model? And where do we find the answer? Today's human is a blurred version of the original. And by the way, side note, we'll see that as we, as we, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see the model human being. And I love that idea about how God became flesh, God incarnate to model for us what the ideal human being is to be like. All right, so tuck that away. If we wanna learn what it means to be human, look at Jesus's life, he's our model. But interestingly, the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. In other words, he is the second model because the first one has been distorted. But we can go back to the first one before the fall and understand a little bit about what does it mean to be human? Do we get some clues from there that will inform our own humanity? Now, what's interesting about this, this human condition is that it's universal. And every religion, every school of philosophy, every social science system tries to offer a comprehensive answer to these questions. What does it mean to be human? 
In fact, when I was in seminary, we read this book called uh, 10 Theories of Human Nature. And it was not a Christian book, but it was fascinating because it took the major philosophical systems in the world, including Greek, um, Greek philosophy, including religions, the major religions of the world. And it said all of these major philosophical religious systems in the world, they seek to answer four fundamental questions. They all try to do this. The first is the origin of the universe. Where did this all come from? How did this all start? That's a question that every system tries to answer. Secondly, they try to answer the origin of humanity. It's related to that, right? How did we come into the picture? And what is our purpose? Third, they, this is a very interesting thing, that every system seeks to answer what has gone wrong. You see, because no matter what your background is, no matter what your human experience is growing up, what your philosophy or religion, everybody recognizes there is something wrong in humanity because of the things that we do to one another, the horrible things we do, the horrible experiences we have in our lives. So what has gone wrong? And the fourth question every system looks to answer is, what is the solution, right? It's logical. What has gone wrong? What is the solution? And they propose their theories. So let me ask you, does God's word have answers to these profound questions of what it means to be human? I would say absolutely. And I would, I would propose to you that the Bible has the original answers and the best answers to these questions. And a lot of this we see as we unpack Genesis. I believe God's word tells us more about our humanity than any other ancient source. Uh, a lot of creation myths focus on the gods, but Genesis focuses on us. Yes, it has God. Yes, God's part of the story, obviously, but it really tells us more about who we are and who he is and our interaction between the two. So as we look at Genesis over the next few weeks, we're going to see that we have a maker who knows our model inside and out, right? If you want to know something about something, you, you ask the inventor or the creator, what is the, the, the solution or the answer to this? God's going to tell us what's gone wrong in our humanity. And Genesis is going to tell us what is the solution as well, or at least it will give us clues to the solution. All right, so that's where we're going. Thanks for enduring the, the long preview. I'd like to invite you to stand as we read this morning from Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to read select verses from chapter 1. We don't have time to read all of it. We're not going to cover all of it. But we're going to read select verses from chapter 1 and a few from chapter 2. So in Genesis 1, 1, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter two. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And verse 21, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, there's a lot there and a lot we're going to cover, even though we also are skipping a lot. But, but the first thing we see in verse 1, 1 of Genesis is, I love the simplicity of it, right? He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, what's interesting about the Bible, about God's word is it's either all of God's word or it's not. And if you can't believe the first line, why are you going to believe the rest of it? Or maybe put it this way, if you can't believe the first line, it's going to lead us to doubts in believing other parts as well. And so we're going to look at the first couple of verses here because I believe they're highly important. We tend to kind of read over them, but it says that in the beginning, God created. God created the heavens and the earth. It's simple. It's sufficient, although it raises questions, right? Well, heavens and the earth, what does that mean? How does that happen? What's interesting to me when you read this passage is a lot of times I think we look at verse 3 as the point where God began creating, Right? Where it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. I think a lot of times we think that the first two verses are some kind of just preliminary verses, and verse 3 is where God begins creating. But I want to propose to you that God begins creating in verse 1, and verse 2 is also very important to this order of creation. And again, if we're going to believe the rest of God's word, it's so important, so fundamental, that we can wrap our minds and wrap our faith around what is happening in the story of creation. So creation doesn't start in verse three, it starts in verse one. God creates the heavens and the earth. And in order to do that, there's a key ingredient that it tells us about in verse two, where it says that, let me go back to verse two. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Notice that ingredient there, that there is water in verse two. And so if you're thinking about this logically, you're saying, well, God is going to create, but if he's going to create out of nothing, well, hey, wait a minute, there's some water here in verse two. So he's not really creating out of nothing, is he? He's, he's got some kind of cheat code where, he, where, he, where water shows up and now he begins creating. Uh, that is not what's happening. What happens is God first obviously creates the water so that out of water, because water is a fundamental building block for existence, all right? Without water, we cannot have life anywhere. That's why scientists are always looking for water on Mars or the moon or out of space, because without that, there's no possibility of life. So I love that in verse two, God includes that there is water because God has created water first, and then there's going to be the rest of creation. You can't go any further until you have water. And so how does a universe that has tons of hydrogen, but very little oxygen, 
how does the universe produce H2O, which is two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, the source of water. Now, some of you are gonna like this, some of you are gonna fall asleep, but I'm gonna geek out a little bit on some science, all right? I'm not a, a science major, I'm not a science professional, but I think it's really important as we look at this, perhaps to strengthen our understanding of how God did this. So in the 1950s, there was an astrophysicist team in the UK, in England, and it was led by Sir Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle at the time was the world's leading astrophysicist. And he wanted to understand where the material for the universe came from. Remember, that's one of the questions everybody asks, right? Where did this all come from? Where did it originate? And so he thought maybe there could be clues to what makes up the universe in the universe itself, right? You break it down and you begin to understand it and then try to reverse engineering. It's kind of like, kind of like if you ever build Legos, right? You know how, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. I can do okay and build a little simple Lego, a few blocks, maybe 50 pieces or less, right? My daughter is the Lego master. She can take these thousand piece Legos sets and build them together. I don't have the patience for that. But we've seen Legos, not many that we have, but we've seen Legos that are this big, right? And this, this wide, because they can make them so, so intricate and complex. And if you don't know what Legos are, but then you walk up and, and you see this creation, you know, you wonder, well, how did this come to be? One of the ways you can learn about it is by breaking it down, right? Go back to reverse it to see if you can figure out what happened. So this is what this team of astrophysicists was trying to do. Look at the universe, look at the different elements in the universe and figure out how could this have happened. So follow along if you can, all right? The details aren't as important as the conclusion, but hopefully this will be clear. So this team of scientists, they could see how hydrogen is abundant in the universe, right? There's plenty of hydrogen. You can blow stuff up everywhere in the universe. But that they could see how hydrogen could create deuterium. I'm not sure what that does, but it's important. And deuterium can then create helium and protons, right? That's important too. But then what? Then two helium atoms can create beryllium. Apparently that's really important, all right? And so once we have beryllium, then you must have something very unique happen, all right? When you have beryllium, you also have carbon-12 nucleus, and this carbon-12 nucleus has to get into a very precise, excited state, vibrations, that matches the energy level of beryllium state, and then potentially that can create organic matter. Now, by excited state, you know, picture a four-year-old hyped up on sugar, all right? Like, it's kind of vibrating. That's, that's what we mean by excited state, right? That this nucleus of carbon has to match the excited state of, of the natural state of beryllium in order for, for the next step to happen, all right? We're not even to the end yet, okay? And so, but I said potentially because what? Because there are two steps in this process, all right, um, that... In order to create organic matter, which, is, which we have to start with water, you have to have oxygen and hydrogen come together. But how do we find oxygen in a universe that is deplete of it? So this team, what they did is they discovered that a resonance, all right, and tuck that word away for just a moment, a resonance at exactly 7.68 mega electron volts. I don't know what that is, but it's a, it's a, it's a measurement of resonance that at exactly that resonance, it would cause the carbon-12 nucleus to match beryllium state and potentially create that organic matter. But it still needed a second resonance, like a second step. The first one's 7.68, the second one is 7.12 mega electron volts. 
And then when this happens, these two very precise resonances of the carbon nucleus that matches the beryllium, then it produces oxygen. And after all that, I need a little oxygen <laughs> to catch up my breath, which then starts to combine with the very abundant hydrogen that we have in the universe. And that's how you can get water. So all this, these chain reactions, these precise uh, chemical um, reactions have to happen just to get water. But Hoyle figured it out. And they said, okay, if this and this and this and this, this, then we get this. And he said, then there's enough water with enough carbon left over to form the basis of life on earth. They figured it out. They were able to reverse engineer it. Now notice two very important things that stand out that are important to us today. The first thing is the definition of resonance. What does it mean for something to have resonance? It means that it's vibrating. It has to do with sound, right? Our voices resonate. It's, it has to do with sound waves. And it's the same types of wavelengths that create vibrations, right? So imagine back in the enlightenment when people started questioning the word of God and saying, oh, it says that God spoke and things come into existence. Ha, ha, ha. Sound cannot create things. And yet now modern physics tells us the actually opposite is actually true. Yeah, it takes sound vibrations to create this perfect chemical reaction so that you can get oxygen and water and then creation. Are you with me? Yeah, all right, amen. Science major right there, perhaps, right? So, so physics is showing to us that what God tells us in the Bible could actually happen. It's actually true. And I would say to you, it's actually the way it happened. And, and Hoyle may agree, as you'll see here in just a moment, because physics shows us it's almost as if a precise, a perfectly precise, powerful voice spoke a resonance in two frequencies that unleashed the chemical reactions necessary to create a universe. I mean, that just blows my mind that it takes these perfect sound resonances to create the universe. And yet what does the Bible tell us? That God said, he spoke creation into existence. Now, Hoyle, like many uh, scientists in the 1950s was an atheist, but he was an honest atheist. And he said two things that I think are very important. He said, first of all, without the existence of these two resonances, very specific ones. We would be stuck with a universe consisting of hydrogen and helium with no earth and no humans. And then he goes on to say this. He says, in the, in the facts of the science that we've talked about, would you not say to yourself, some super calculating intellect must have designed the properties of the carbon atom and a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. Now, Hoyle is an atheist, all right? But he's an honest atheist. He doesn't believe in God, but he also doesn't believe in blind forces because the science tells him otherwise. He said, the number one calculates from the facts seemed to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. The conclusion that a super intellect must have created the conditions for this to happen because it has to be so precise and so exact before you even get oxygen or water into the picture. But what I love about what this leads us to is that this chemical reaction produces water, which is what we find in verse two. And it's essential to life. It's essential to the next phase of creation. 
And that's exactly what we find in verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So next time you read Genesis 1, don't skip over that part. Stop there and remember the science lesson that Pastor David gave you about how water came to be in the first place. And then it creates opportunities beyond that. All right, science lesson over. Let's go on. Verses 26 and 27. Not only does God create, and I hope that phrase now carries a lot more weight with us, that God created but he also gives us our identity. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says that then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. What I'd like to share from this point is that that God gives us our identity. From the very beginning, God gives us our identity. We're gonna mention four parts to this identity very quickly, but first I wanna show you this triangle on the screen because I think a lot of times we think of our identity as something that we have to earn or discover. And especially if you're a Christian and you're, you feel like, well, I have to do things so that God is pleased with me. But yet here God creates Adam and Eve and he gives them their identity. They haven't done anything yet and yet he's already blessing them. When Jesus comes into the picture, you know, he is baptized. He hasn't done his ministry yet. And yet God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I think the principle here that we want to grasp is important. That God is our father and our creator. And he first gives us our identity. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. I am well pleased with you. And as a result of that, then we go out into the world and live out our life in obedience. Or we live out the tasks that God has called us to do. But in our human mindset, often we get it the other way around, right? We say, okay, God is Father, God's Creator, God is Holy. I've got I've to do the right things and figure out myself the right equations of my life, and then I'll find my identity. But the Bible tells us that you don't have to do that. That's the way of law that ends in death, but the way of grace is God has given us our identity. And what are the components of that? So we don't have to discover ourselves. We have to just receive what God has given us the four components that I have for you this morning are this. First, he designed two complementary genders, male and female. He created them. Uh, the, the verses we read in, at the end of chapter two, is this is why a, a, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they become one flesh. Two complementary genders is all that God has created. In our world, what is our world trying to figure out? Our world has trying to give all this, this menu of options of what genders are possible. And again, that's because people are looking for the source, not in the creator, but in other sources of information. And yet it says here that God says there's male and there's female. Now, let me be clear. There are in some very, very rare cases, there's something that people are born with called an intersex condition, where there may be ambiguity in the physical component of that person about male and female. But that's a very, very minuscule part of the population. Interestingly enough, the Bible talks about eunuchs. And eunuchs are, so it says some are born that way, some are made that way. So in our fallen world, we're all born with some sort of differentiations from the original design. And so it's possible that there could be some strangeness, some, some, um, some, something different, but that is because of the fall in Genesis 3, which we'll look at next, next week. It's not by original design. God's original design is two genders, male and female, and they complement one another. 
And the, the sooner we receive that and, and accept that as our identity, the sooner we can move on. Interestingly enough, I, I, I want to say something I hadn't planned to say here, but um, I watched a, a news program, not a Christian-based one, interviewing some people who had written these stories, and these stories just took off like wildfire. And the reason it took off is because the, the author was asking the question, what does it mean to be a man? And there was such a response to it because people were saying, yeah, I'm asking myself the same question. In other words, there's a lot of confusion in our world about what does it mean to be a man? There's, and I, I would say probably in the same way, what does it mean to be a woman? And so, but, but God is, is telling us, hey, come back to the original creator. I will tell you what it means to be a man. I will show you what it means to be a woman. And there's a perfect plan for you in that. So God gives us our identity and part of that is our gender. Obviously, that's where we start. But we're given our gender not just to preserve and propagate the species. He also invites us to more, right? Second thing is God invites us to co-create with him. Part of our identity is that we are co-creators with God. Again, what a beautiful picture, right? That God gives us this ability to co-create. And where do we get that from? We get that from verse 29, where it talks about seeds. Did you notice that? God didn't just tell Adam and Eve, hey, these are the fruit trees you can eat and these are the plants you can have. Go at it. Have a blast. You know, cook some stuff up and, and see what you come up with. No, God tells them that he gives them plants and trees that have what? That have seeds in them, right? Because God is giving them a principle. He's giving them a principle. He says, look, here's a tree with fruit and seeds and you're going to take these seeds and you're going to multiply. You're going to grow. You're going to stretch out over the earth and build civilization. You're going to co-create with me. So part of our identity is that we have this great capacity in us to be co-creators with God and to spread the goodness of God over the world. I wish we had more time to dive into that, but some people call that the cultural mandate, that God calls us to be fruitful and multiply, meaning to fill the world with good things as co-creators with God. A third part of our identity is that he created us to rule with him. Now, a lot of times we don't use that word, right? We don't, you don't go to the office and say, hey, honey, I'm going to the office. I'm going to go rule over my work this week, right? That sounds kind of oppressive. That's one of the things we're, we shouldn't be as oppressors, right? But this idea is that God said, look, I want you to, to come rule with me or come work with me in the garden. Come work with me in creation. And this is also a beautiful picture because again, in the ancient myths that, that have other creation stories, the gods create humans to work for them to do the work that the gods don't want to do so they can sit back and relax and enjoy their lives. This God, the God of the Bible, creates humans to work with him, to come alongside him and to develop civilization along with him. We'll talk more about that later on this spring when we look at a theology of work from Genesis. And the last thing that we see here is that he also calls us to not only work with him, but to rest with him. Did you catch that at the beginning of chapter two? That on the seventh day, God rested from his work. Was God tired? <laughs> I don't think so, right? But he teaches us a principle, right? Of rhythm of life. Six days you shall work and on the seventh you shall rest. And he calls that day holy. Now notice this, for God, it's his seventh day, right? He's worked six days and he's resting the seventh. For Adam and Eve, it's their first full day. So their first full day on the job is what? It's an invitation to be with God. And from that place, they go out to do their work in the world. That's a great principle for us that we need. Are you starting your day with God? Are you starting your week with God? 
so that he launches you then from that place into the world. So as part of our identity, God gives us two complementary genders. He invites us to co-create with him. He creates us to work with him, and he made us to rest with him in fellowship. And in all of this, God gives us all a calling. God put Adam in the garden, which by the way, the Garden of Eden means a place called delight. He puts Adam in the garden in a delightful place to do a delightful thing, and that is to work and develop it. So there's a lot here that we've looked at. There's a lot in this origin story. And you know, when you think of your own origin story, you might say, well, you know, it's interesting to look at genealogy, and I think that's very helpful. You go back a few generations and see where you came from. But don't forget to go all the way back. Our story goes all the way back to the beginning. And in Genesis, we can find our, our anchor, our foundation point of what does it mean to be human? So I invite you over the next few weeks to be reading through Genesis so that you can come prepared to think through what is it that God is telling us about our origins as humanity. What I find today that I hope you'll be encouraged by is that God really created and he is a wise, intelligent, good creator. And God made you and he gave you an identity. You don't have to go discover it somewhere else. Receive your identity from God and grow in it. And that identity includes not only your sexuality, but it includes your calling. It includes a, a creative capacity and an invitation to rest and to work with him. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we close this time. In fact, I'd like to invite you to stand as we do this. And I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment. And after I pray, I'll, I'll give us a benediction and we'll be done. But before we pray, I just want to ask you to contemplate a couple of things. Just in silence before God is our creator. You might say, David, that's interesting science. That's interesting stories. But what does this really have to do with my day-to-day -day life? And what I want to encourage you with is that this is your God we're talking about. We sang earlier that you are the same God. You are the same God. This same God who created the universe in ways that we can barely understand is the same God that can speak into your problems, that can speak into your challenges. It's the same God that can speak into your hopes and dreams and help you Make those a reality. So as we think about the big picture of who God is and what he's done, let it come into your heart and ask him, God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want to create and build in my life? And as you do that, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, make sure you're spending time in scripture, letting God's word speak your life into existence in the way that he wants you the way he designed you to live. And one last thought before we pray. You know, God spoke into creation all these wonderful things. But when it came to Adam and Eve, he didn't speak. He got near and he used his hands and he formed with his hands lovingly the man and the woman. And so I think that's a picture for us today that you know, God speaks wonderful things, but when it comes to our lives, he wants to draw near. He wants to hold you. He wants to walk with you hand in hand. So hear his voice through his word, but then take hold of his hand and invite him to walk with you in whatever you're doing 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Genesis giving us insight into our origin story. Thank you that you've invited us, Lord, because this is really your story and you've invited us to be a part of it. So Lord, as we get a big view of what you've done and you're awesome, you're amazing, help us to bring that home into our hearts to know that you are the same God and you will bring that same energy and love and passion and creativity to our problems, to our challenges and to our hopes and dreams. So we invite you to do that this, this new year in our lives. Help us to live in, in tune with you, to listen to your voice daily and to walk with you. Lord, if any of us are struggling with our identity, Lord, let, let us listen to your voice, listen to your word and understand who you've made us to be. Thank you that you give us clarity, Lord, in a world that is noisy and confusing. When we look to you, you give us clarity and hope. And so Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we leave from this place, we would be encouraged and that we would be um, aware that the creator God who made us, loves us and goes with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we leave, I'd like to invite you to do a couple of things. Throughout this series, I'm gonna put my email up there and there's a text number, although we're still working on the features of that. If you have a question about Genesis, send it out to me, all right? And I won't talk about it from here necessarily, or I certainly won't embarrass you if you have a question, but I'd love to interact with you over any questions you might have about this. And the second thing is, as we dismiss in prayer, uh, there'll be a few people up here that are willing to pray with you. If you have a concern, a burden, if you wanna to talk to someone, there'll be a prayer team here on your way out. So as you go now, listen to this beautiful passage from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Go in peace. God bless you.